Most people would agree that the people who are most severely impacted by climate change are the people who contributed least to the problem. I would like us to discover ways that we can win, so to speak, by helping people we have harmed. Something that's really exciting about U.S. policy right now is President Biden's commitment to figuring out how to resettle and admit climate displaced people. This is Defending the Planet from Columbia Law School. I'm your host, Michael Gerard. I'm a professor at Columbia Law School, where I teach courses on environmental and energy law and serve as faculty director of the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law. Each week, I'll be joined by guests who are experts in the field, including several of my colleagues at Columbia. In this series, we'll be talking about combating the climate crisis through one of the most important and effective sets of tools at our disposal, the law. The Marshall Islands sit six feet above sea level. As oceans rise, this tiny nation-state in the Pacific Ocean is at the highest risk of being wiped off the map, literally. Is a country still a country if it's underwater? For the last decade, I've been working with officials in the Marshall Islands to advise on climate change and its impacts. What happens to people when their homeland is no longer habitable? Where will they go? What will be their citizenship? What rights will they have? Migration of people as a result of climate change is happening already on every continent, and it's a challenge that's presenting new legal questions on a near-constant basis. In this episode, we dive into climate migration to talk about how existing human rights law and international cooperation can protect people fleeing the destructive forces of climate change. My guests today are Michael Doyle and Amma Francis. Michael Doyle is a university professor at Columbia and specializes in international relations theory, international security, and international organizations. He has served as director of the Columbia Global Policy Initiative and is a co-director of its International Migration Project. He's an elected fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the American Philosophical Society, and the American Academy of Political and Social Science. Amma Francis is the Climate Displacement Project Strategist at the International Refugee Assistance Project, where they are developing a strategy in collaboration with the Natural Resources Defense Council to expand legal protection for climate displaced people. Until recently, Amma was a fellow at the Sabin Center. They are now a non-resident fellow with us. Amma is also a consultant to the Open Society Foundation's International Migration Initiative. Welcome, Michael and Amma. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Delighted to join you. Amma, you grew up in a small island nation in the Caribbean, Dominica. Can you tell us about how that experience sparked your interest in climate migration? Sure. Uh, yeah, I grew up in Dominica, which is a small island in the Caribbean, as you said, and there are two things to know about Dominica. The first is that it's one of the most beautiful places on earth, 
And the second is that climate change is one of our biggest threats. I think this was really brought home for me in 2017 when Dominica, my home island, was devastated by Hurricane Maria. Many of you will have remembered that Hurricane Maria devastated a number of other islands in the Caribbean, including Puerto Rico. Um, for us in Dominica, Maria was um, just absolutely devastating. Um, we lost the equivalent of over 200% of our GDP. Um, some people died. And after the storm, about 20% of the population permanently left the island. Uh, when I think at the time, I was already really engaged in climate and really cared about the issue. But I think Hurricane Maria really brought home the message for me that climate change isn't a far off threat. It's something that's happening right now. Amma, can you give us a sense of the nature and magnitude of the climate displacement problem? So climate change and environmental degradation, um, they're already happening and the effects are driving people to flee their homes um, to, extent, to an extent that's greater than conflict. So there are generally three types of movement. Um, most people are displaced within their home countries, so they're moving internally, um, what's called internal displacement. Some um, small number of communities in the U.S. and across the world um, have chosen to move en masse as a community to a safer location, planned relocation. Um, and the third type of movement is generally cross-border, so people who are seeking shelter across um, borders in other countries. It's really um, difficult to precisely estimate how many people are moving in this sense. Um, estimates range from 25 million to 1 billion people by 2050. Um, but these numbers are sort of hard to pin down because climate change interacts with a number of other factors to, to force people to leave home. Um, that being said, we do know that environmental disasters, climate-related and otherwise, um, are displacing more people um, than conflict and have been doing so since 2008. Just last year, um, climate and other environmental disasters, climate-related and other environmental disasters, triggered more than 30 million internal displacements. Um, and this, again, was just last year. And that's the three times the number of people who were displaced by conflict. Um, I bring this up to say um, that while our legal structure is set up to deal with people who are fleeing political persecution or war, we don't really have the same legal architecture for dealing with people who are fleeing climate-related disasters. And it's not only sea level rise and flooding, it's also drought and desertification and loss of sea ice. And in in time, it'll be extreme in uh, unsurvivable heat. That's right. The term climate refugee is often used, but that really isn't uh, a legal category. Can you explain that? If you are going to gain refugee status in another country, you need to show that you've been persecuted in relation to your race, religion, nationality, ethnicity, or particular social group. There's no climate category, so to speak. That has meant that a lot of people generally say that there's no such thing as a climate refugee. 
something I was really excited to learn recently was that there are actually climate displaced people that have already gained refugee protection in the U.S. in part because of climate change. When climate change, um, because climate change was interacting with one of these established grounds that I mentioned, race, religion, etc. While there's no climate category, so to speak, in the refugee definition, both here in the U.S. and also generally across the world, um, there are instances where climate change interacts with these established grounds for protection so that climate displaced people are actually eligible for refugee protection status. But um, no court has yet agreed with me necessarily um, in all of the cases that have been tried. Um, Generally, courts don't extend refugee um, status to climate displaced people. But again, we are seeing some examples here in the U.S. where that's the case. There was litigation brought by um, a man from Kiribati, which is another one of the threatened island nations in the uh, in the Pacific, trying to get refugee status in New Zealand. Michael, can you tell us about that? Yes, he made a claim that being returned to Kiribati would fundamentally violate his basic human rights to survival. And this was heard by the Human Rights Committee. And uh, with a divided vote, it nonetheless was judged that uh, he could not sustain that claim. Uh, the dissent was just as interesting as the majority opinion. And the, a standard came forward that I thought was quite interesting, a standard of irreparable harm. And the end judge, as it came through in my interpretation, was that he was able to demonstrate some harm, but not that it was irreparable. That is, that the government of Kiribati should have been able to address it. Uh, a number of commentaries have suggested that uh, the, the committee's judgment was a, a little too easy. That is, that it's very hard to address the kind of harms that his island nation was facing and that some people question whether it was rightly decided. But we now do have some standard out there called irreparable harm that I think should influence uh, debates going forward. And hopefully it'll be developed in ways that are, are more protective. Uh, Michael, you've been one of the leaders of the effort to develop the Model International Mobility Convention. Can you tell us what that is and where it stands? Yes, this is a, a model convention, sort of like a, a model international law that was put together by 40 plus experts over a two year period uh, beginning in 2015. And the two distinctive features of it were that it was designed to be comprehensive and cumulative. Comprehensive in that it's designed to cover the variety of circumstances uh, through which people move across borders, everything from visitors through tourists and students and labor migrants and investors and family reunification, and then refugees and forced migrants. And second of all, it was designed to be cumulative. That is, the notion is that you needed to be able to realize some of your basic rights in differing degrees depending upon those differing circumstances. And as you move across the statuses that we described, you know, foreign student, labor, et cetera, you need to be able to realize more and more of your rights until if you're a refugee or a forced migrant, you and your family really need to be able to realize all of those rights that you have been denied in your home country, including employment, et cetera, and eventually even, in our view, citizenship rights. 
So that's the structure of it. And it was designed to fill some gaps in existing international law on mobility. It was designed to create synergies among different parts of the law of mobility, including between labor visas and refugee resettlement, something we've worked on since. And it was designed to produce better criteria, designed to you know, partly address the, the problem that Amma just mentioned, that existing refugee law doesn't cover all of the circumstances in which people are forced to flee to protect the lives of themselves and their family, and therefore who have a real moral claim on our asylum, but don't qualify under existing refugee law from the 1951 convention. So how would this help people who are displaced by climate change? It would help people who are displaced by climate change because we came to the, the view after a lot of debating that the Refugee Convention of 1951, as Emma just described, it was too narrow. Uh, there are a lot of other reasons for which people flee to save their lives and livelihoods that need to be recognized under international law. And so what we decided to do was leave refugee status as it is in the 51 Convention. You know, persecution based on race, religion, nationality, social group, political opinion. Leave it as it is, but add a new category that we call forced migrants. And that's anybody who's forced to flee from circumstances that put their lives at risk or that of their family or experiencing, you know, arbitrary incarceration or other crimes like torture, etc. Uh, and say that for whatever reasons that you may be forced to flee, you would qualify for asylum under this new model convention. And so we decided to go to that as the right standard that would include people who are fleeing to save themselves from droughts, hurricanes, uh, you know, floods, etc. So you think that the definition of refugee under the 1951 Refugee Convention should be expanded to include all those people who are displaced by any of the number of these factors you're talking about? No, we came to the decision after a lot of time that we shouldn't do that. That is, that we should keep the refugee definition in the 51 Convention. There are countries that are skeptical about the protections that are built into the 51 Convention, you know, that allow people asylum, that allow them a status equal to foreign nationals, that uh, preserve, you know, their basic freedoms of expression, and etc. So instead, we created a new category, a broader category called forced migrants, that has all of the asylum protections of the 51 Convention and more. We say that you have uh, rights that, with regard to some areas like employment, et cetera, after you've been recognized as a forced migrant, that are equivalent to nationals, not foreigners. And there are a number of other protections that are built in. So in real terms, a refugee now becomes, a 1951 refugee now becomes a subset of our broader category called forced migrants, but we don't touch the words refugee or the 51 convention we just want to build on it and expand it, not revise it. Alma, how do you feel about the idea of expanding the definition of refugee under the convention? I agree with Michael that, that now we're, these aren't friendly times for renegotiating the definition um, of a refugee. I would 
only add that I think there are things that we can be doing, at least here in the U.S., to make sure that um, people who are eligible for protection um, because they're fleeing climate-related disasters aren't being left out um, of the protective scope of refugee status. Um, there are things that we can do, like training our immigration officers here in the U.S. to recognize valid climate claims under U.S. refugee law. Um, the Department of Homeland Security, for example, might issue guidance that clarifies how climate interacts with um, the U.S. definition of a refugee, which is based on the refugee convention that we're talking about. Alma, you've written about free movement agreements. Can you tell us what those are and what relevance they have to climate displacement? Free movement agreements are provisions, migration-related provisions within regional trade agreements um, that make it easier for people to move um, between a set of participating states. So the most well-known example is the Schengen area in Europe, um, but about 120 countries around the world participate in some sort of free movement agreement. Usually the, the agreements are, are tied, as I mentioned, to region, regional trade blocks. So the, the intent is to make it easier for goods, services, and also labor, i.e. people, to move from place to place. And um, I'm excited about free movement agreements as a tool in the climate context um, for two reasons. The first is that they've already been used in this context. Uh, in the Caribbean, I mentioned that um, in 2017, Hurricane Maria devastated my home island, Dominica. After, after that event, Dominicans were able to seek shelter in other islands in the Caribbean because of the rights that they had to enter and work in other islands through our own regional trade block in the Caribbean, um, the Caribbean community, and also the Organization of Eastern Caribbean States. Um, in East Africa, um, a set of East African countries have just negotiated um, their own free movement agreement that expressly mentions people moving in the context of disasters and makes clear that people fleeing environmental disasters also will have rights to move um, under, under the agreement. I've written about the idea that the major emitting countries should each take um, a percentage of the world's population that is displaced by climate change roughly proportional to the their contribution to the load of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. For the U.S., that's now about 25%. Obviously, under U.S. politics, it's inconceivable that, that the U.S. would agree to that. But do you think this idea has any sense of, uh, it makes sense as a matter of moral responsibility? And do you think that there's any way that over time some countries might accept that kind of responsibility? You know, from the moral point of view, we collectively, the industrial countries and the U.S. at 25% of the burden individually, are creating harms on people uh, who have no uh, direct uh, causal um, connection to the creation of the harm. So we're, we're, there's something that, you know, I'm writing something with a couple colleagues uh, Janine Prantle and Mark Wood, and we're calling something related to what you described sort of moral tort liability uh, in the sense that we're creating harms that should be redressed. Uh, and climate is clearly uh, one of them. 
I would add that to a second factor, which is that, um, you know, 85% of the world's refugees today are being taken care of, hosted uh, by developing countries. And the reason is that they happen to be next door to a lot of civil wars. This is an unfair distribution. So we put these two things together, and clearly we should have a much fairer uh, distribution of responsibilities. So I would be 100% with the countries that have created these harms to try to redress them. As somebody who's worked in international politics at the UN and, and elsewhere, frankly, I'm a little skeptical that countries step up and recognize the, their guilt for harms that they've done. Um, there are very few exceptions in history. You know, to my mind, countries unfortunately typically respond to self-interest and to a certain extent, in very limited ways, to uh, the reputational benefits of seeming to do your share and do good. But the first is much more powerful. So I would like us to discover ways that we can win so to speak, by helping people we have harmed. <laughs> I know that sounds difficult, but I think that's a, an avenue for uh, addressing these problems. Labor visas is one way that we could give priority to refugees. I mean, you've written about the idea of creating a mobility visa clearinghouse. Can you tell us about that? In general, countries should create a more regularized institutional environment for bringing in labor uh, to fill jobs that are not going to be filled by nationals. Uh, if this country, the U.S., is going to continue to grow, and we want it to, we will need immigrant labor, you know, given the demographic profiles that we see today. Uh, and we can identify likely jobs that will not be filled unless immigrants play some role in filling them. And we should prioritize uh, those immigrant labor jobs uh, for people who actually need to flee their country as well, because there are many refugees and forced migrants who have substantial skills that they would like to practice. Ideally, back in their home countries, after it's been restored and are put back on a development path. But if not, then as immigrants. Ahmed, do you have thoughts on this issue of the moral responsibility of developed countries to take in people who are displaced by climate change? I think we most people would agree that the people who are most severely impacted by climate change are the people who contributed least to the problem, and you could say the same for countries. And so from that perspective, I, I do think that here in the U.S. where we largely benefit from carbon pollution um, and in other countries, industrialized countries that have benefited from that carbon pollution as well, I definitely agree that there's a, a moral responsibility to take in people. And like Michael, have also, as a pragmatist, tried to think of ways that we can actually incentivize countries to um, open up ways for people to migrate um, regularly. And here, you know, I would just, I guess, highlight that something that's really exciting about U.S. policy right now is President Biden's commitment to climate change and specifically his commitment to figuring out how to resettle and admit climate displaced people. Um, 
You know, he issued an executive order in February uh, requiring a report on climate displacement and how to admit climate displaced people. So I guess I would just, I bring that up to just push back just a little bit against the, the, the premise of the question, which is that it's not politically feasible. I, I think actually um, there are some governments that understand this as a, as a moral issue and also realize from a practical standpoint that um, migration is happening. It's, it's in a country's benefit to, to be able to manage that um, by setting out clear ways that people can enter a country. Um, and that from an economic standpoint, also um, for the reasons that Michael expanded on, um, bringing in labor is, is a good thing. And on that point, I would add, though, that it's really important that these labor pathways also be complemented by humanitarian pathways as well, um, because not although most migrants are of working age, not everyone is able to work who might need protection. Elderly people, um, people with disabilities, children, for example, might not be able to work. Um, and it's also important that built into these labor mobility schemes is a respect for um, international labor, labor standards and access to decent work. So I am I, generally on the side of migration can be a win-win situation, um, but we need to make sure that there sort of there's a respect for rights built into that so that it actually is a win-win and not an exploitative situation. Do you think there are other ways that international organizations or international law can help address the issues of climate displacement? I do. Um, I think in recent years, there have been a number of really exciting developments. The Paris Agreement, for example, set up a task force on on displacement to, to study and, and figure out responses to this issue of climate displacement. Um, more recently, the Global Compact on Safe, Orderly, and Regular Migration, which was the first intergovernmentally negotiated migration agreement, um, mentions climate change and highlights specific policy tools that national governments can adopt to, um, to admit people who are fleeing um, all sorts of climate-related disasters. International law, is, especially in recent years, has been doing more on climate displacement, which is a really good sign. Um, and I think one of the most important things that international law and organizations can be doing on climate displacement is to be really pushing forward this normative shift to more admission pathways, more migration pathways for people who are on the move. And I would just also add that um, it's really important not to forget the regional level as well. The U.S. Um, in 2016, for example, endorsed guidelines um, on the protection of people moving across borders in the context of climate change and disasters as part of um, the Regional Conference on Migration, which a number of our allies in the Americas participate in. And so there, there's a lot of movement at the regional level as well. Um, and I, I, I'm excited by that. We've mostly been talking about international migration, but there has been quite a bit of displacement within the United States caused by climate change. Of course, in the 1930s, we had the Dust Bowl, where millions of Americans from the middle part of the country uh, migrated uh, mostly to the West because of the persistent drought. 
we have internal displacement um, uh, today in the United States, and we'll face a lot more of it with uh, coastlines that are flooding, and more recently with the wildfires that have been so uh, terrible uh, in, in the West. Amma, can you talk a little bit about that? There are some estimates that there will be some 13 million um, people displaced by sea level rise in the U.S. Um, within this century. And of course, there are indigenous communities in the U.S. who um, are already undergoing planned relocation, at least two um, who have decided as a community to move in Alaska and who are doing so in Louisiana. And so you're absolutely right. Climate displacement is, is an issue that's happening here in the U.S. And unfortunately, the story in terms of our legal frameworks and normative frameworks um, is not a hopeful one. Um, we also don't have adequate U.S. laws um, or frameworks in place to, to deal with this issue. So um, it's, a, it's a big challenge as well. A major question is move to where? And if we are going to be moving millions of people, tens of millions of people, where are they going to go? This is really a, what I think is going to be one of the major policy and legal challenges in the decades to come. Um, I think you consider yourself an environmental social justice advocate. Uh, you once said that now that you live in the U.S., you realize that climate change is an issue about inequality, not only between countries, but also between uh, people from different racial and socioeconomic backgrounds. Can you expand on that a little bit? I think the simple way to explain this is that inequality structures outcomes. The communities who are hardest hit by any crisis, whether that's COVID or climate, um, tends to be low income and communities of color. And that's because of a legacy of systemic inequality, racism. Um, that means that resources are concentrated predominantly in not only predominantly white communities, but also predominantly white countries. So the, the countries that are most impacted by the climate crisis, for example, are, are countries that um, are predominantly of color and and generally under-resourced. And again, that's, that's no accident. Um, it's linked to um, histories of colonization, systemic racism, which means that resources have been unequally concentrated. And resources, as we know, is what um, allows communities and countries to withstand crisis. If we think about a storm hitting a, a small island state, um, like a hurricane, for example, a Category 5 hurricane, which is the strongest type of hurricane, hits Dominica, my home island, and that's devastating. For us, that was what our then prime minister described as war, absolute war. Um, if that same hurricane hits, say, New Orleans, um, it's also really devastating. But the whole country of the U.S. is not totally side railed by that one environmental event. Um, if you zoom in even closer, though, um, the African-Americans in New Orleans are are much more severely affected by that one environmental event than generally um, the the wealthier white people who live in that same place. And and there's been great work about discriminatory access to, to disaster aid and relief here in the U.S. 
I think what's really exciting about this moment is the effort and the desire really to shift that. And I, I've been really heartened by the the efforts of our institutions and our communities and our families to really think about how can we be redistributing and rethinking how resources are concentrated so that we all have the capacity to cope with these crises that come with being human. But one of the things, and I know this sounds a bit ironic in some way, that makes me hopeful about social change on this issue is that uh, climate change uh, affects not just those who are most vulnerable, but many people who thought they were relatively invulnerable. To give you an example, we have friends who live on a, a very nice lake upstate New York with, with pretty homes and whatnot. Nonetheless, even for these people, the variability in the level of the lake that they're on, produced by big swing, swings in rainfall at various seasons, much more than they're used to, require them to rebuild their docks every year. Now, measured against the lives of people in New Orleans or Dominica, this is trivial, understood. But nonetheless, one of the striking things about the climate change is it gets the attention of those who are well off in addition to those who are much less well off. And that makes me, as a cynical political scientist, a little bit more hopeful of change. Do you see scenarios in your mind for what the uh, the future in, in future decades will bring with respect to uh, uh, climate change displacement and the resulting geopolitical implications of that? Yeah, um, I, I see a, a decent scenario and an indecent scenario. The indecent scenario is that the wealthy countries uh, start building walls around themselves or sending naval patrols to the seas around themselves, pushing back desperate persons onto the countries that they're fleeing. And, you know, severe emergencies in places like South Asia. I think you've mentioned the vulnerability of the Bangladesh coastal areas to long-term flooding. Imagine that taking place and pushing people, you know, in large numbers into India. Uh, India once before was a very generous host to people uh, from that region. Will they be so in the future? We don't know. Uh, and imagine similar uh, evolutions in, in uh, Central America, pushing people north to the U.S. Imagine the Mediterranean. It would be an armed world, an armed camp with, with uh, large levels of, let's call it, ordinary violence. And that's a grim, grim scenario. But I can also see a more decent future wherein we establish uh, uh, regimes that allow for the movement of desperate people, uh, that provide regular pathways of mutual benefit to developed and developing countries, uh, putting them on a path of growth. And most importantly, if this is going to be work, very substantial investment in climate uh, mitigation in the following ways, that is moving to a greener uh, industrial path in places like Europe, North America, Northeast Asia, China, India, and elsewhere, and also investing in the resilient uh, mitigation that 
would might involve the, the movement of some people from vulnerable areas and investing in other places in which which they would live. And so I see those two scenarios out there. And I don't know whether you're asking me which one is more likely. Uh, and I, unfortunately, I don't have a clear instinct on that matter, except to say that we should realize how bad the indecent one is and how tolerable the decent one is. And we should take whatever efforts we can to move toward a much more decent future. Michael and Ama, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Delighted to have joined you. <laughs> My guests today were Michael Doyle and Ama Francis. Join me next time for another episode of Defending the Planet. And make sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. Defending the Planet is brought to you by Columbia Law School and is produced by the Office of Communications, Marketing, and Public Affairs at Columbia Law School. Our executive producer is Michael Petullo, Julie Godso, Nancy Goldfarb, and Carrie Midland, producers. Editing and engineering by Jake Rosati. Writing by Martha Moore and Dan Shaw. Production coordination by Zoe Atridge. Special thanks to Michael Berger and the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. The more reviews we have, the more people will get to listen. If you're interested in learning more about the law and climate change, visit us at law.columbia.edu or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also follow the Sabin Center on Twitter at Sabin Center.